How we doing tonight? Come on. Oh, we can do better than that. Let's go, Porch. There we go. Hey, I want to welcome you to the Porch. My name is Josiah. I have the privilege of serving on staff here. And uh, man, let me just give a warm welcome to our Porch Live locations that are watching. Porch Live Tulsa, Porch Live Boise, Scottsdale, Des Moines, Midland, Texas. And for the very first time, the Porch Live Dorlstown, Pennsylvania. Y'all give it up. And, uh, and my friends right here in Dallas, Texas, welcome. Anybody have a good 4th of July? Yeah? Man, I missed y'all. Like, this is one of my favorite times of the week to gather in this place. And last week was the 4th. So my family and I, we got away to East Texas and we went on a little lake house vacation. And here's my crew. Hopefully, yep, there they are. That's my wife, Kathy, with my best man and my wedding, Joe, and his wife, Haley, and their kids. But then I got my oldest. She's over here doing a little hip thing. That's Camille. And then I got, I don't know how I uh, came up with the blonde hair, blue eye. That She's in the middle. She's kind of lost. She don't know what she's kind of doing, but she's doing her thing. She got the one recessive gene in the family. I'm not sure how she got the, all that blonde hair, but uh, she did. And then I have the little man, uh, Astros jersey. This is, yeah, just mean mugging. That's Caleb. And I'm like, bro, we're just trying to take a family pic, 4th of July for the gram. You know what I'm saying? And uh, he couldn't smile. But that, that's, that's, that's my crew. Uh, about four years ago to this month, to be specific, my family and I moved from Kansas City to Dallas to come on staff here at Watermark and be a part of what God's doing here at the porch. And when we got to Dallas, we couldn't find a house. So we were homeless. Not really. We were living with some friends, but we were homeless for many months and trying to, you know, go from one house to another, just whoever would take us. And uh, I get a phone call from my wife and she said, Josiah, I found the house. And I'm like, uh, okay, uh, send me a link. And she said, no, just jump in the car with me. We're going to go see the house. And, and I'm like, I know what that means. Uh, you know, because what you don't know, she's an interior designer. So she sees things that I don't see. Like she sees potential in things. She can beautify stuff that I can't. But I've already gone down this road with her before. So this is a red flag because in Kansas City, we bought a house. And we did the whole fixer-upper thing. And I'm no Chip, okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm not. She might be Joanna, but I'm far from Chip. I can demo, but I kind of mess things up even when I demo. I'm pretty good at cleaning things up, but that's, but that's about it. And so we pull up to this house, and, uh, and I'm like, oh, no. No, this, this is not, I don't know, how, I don't know if, the, if the Lord gave you a word or, he, you know, he made it clear. This is just not the house. Like, the brick is orange, y'all. And like when the sunlight hits it just right, it's like light pink. And I'm like, no, this is not the house. There's not a blade of grass in the yard. Like it's all weeds. Okay, I'm kind of a grass person. It's therapeutic for me. Um, and then we go into the house. And I'm like, this whole thing needs to be gutted. This is a big project, y'all. Look at these bathrooms. I think we got a picture of the bathrooms. Oh. Oh. Yeah, you feel my pain. Next one. Yeah, I mean, this house is old. I mean, this is 1950s old. And I'm just like, this, this can't be happening. And so uh, 
we start to process it. And I'm just cynical. I'm just being honest. Not, not the best way to be in your marriage, but I'm just confessing this is a safe place. Don't look at me like you're crazy. Come on. You guys got your own thing. I might be cynical and I might be judgmental at times with my wife and what she wants. But I'm cynical, man. I'm, I'm calling out everything I see in this house. So we buy it. We, we, we bite the bullet, she talks me into it, and we think, hey, three to six months of remodel. And three months came and went, six months came and went. And you know, like when your expectations don't really meet reality, you ever, you ever been there before? And, and you're just like, no, this is not what I had in mind. And candidly, over three years of now living in the house, we're still remodeling it in some way. And, uh, and I start there tonight because I think sometimes this is how we feel about God. We say things like, God, I'm going to give you a certain amount of time to beautify this thing in my life that's really ugly. God, God, I'm, I'm, I don't really like what I see you doing. I don't really appreciate what I'm having to go through. I don't, I don't appreciate, hey, this job that I'm working at, it's, it's my fourth job and I'm 30 and I thought I was going to get the raise and the promotion and it didn't happen and I'm still sitting in debt. And these expectations aren't meeting reality. Maybe for you, you're single and 30. That, that's, my, that's my story. Holla at your boy. <laughs> just, just like sitting in my 30s. And, and I'm like, what? God, you can show up anytime. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm waiting. And I had the mentality like, I'm following you, God. Like I'm in, I'm in my Bible. Yeah, like we're getting in God's word and I'm memorizing scripture and I got community and I'm, I'm serving, Lord, I'm serving. And you know this, Lord, I'm giving money. Like I'm giving the 10% off the top to the church and to other ministries. God, you gotta be showing up for me. And your expectations aren't necessarily meeting reality. Maybe, maybe it's a strained relationship and this relationship isn't being reconciled. Maybe a loved one just found out they had cancer. Maybe, maybe it's a death in, in, in your family. And, and you are starting to question God's ability to beautify your situation. And so what we try to do is we put God on this shot clock. We got this amount of time for him to do something. And now you find yourself like me in a lot of different seasons that I can look back on disappointed and discouraged with God. You're frustrated because he's not beautifying your life and your timing. And listen, God sits outside of time. Time doesn't exist in his kingdom. Time isn't in heaven. Like there's no time in heaven. But this is all we know and this is all of our minds can grasp. And we've been given a particular amount of time and maybe today you walk in and you're just discouraged with how life is turning out. And so I wanna just say a statement up front that I believe is, is biblically rooted. It's gonna need some unpacking as we go throughout the message, but I just wanna share this statement. And can I just go like East Texas twang on you for a minute? Like, can I just do that? You good with that? Like, it won't be the, 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 the city boy, you know, perfect uh, language. But let me just go, let me go East Texas country twang on you. If it ain't good, God ain't done. Okay? If it ain't good in your life, God ain't done. Another way of saying that is if something isn't good in your life, then God isn't done. And I'm going to show you where that is in Scripture as we travel through the Scripture tonight. But we're going to be in the book of 
Ecclesiastes, and we're going to see God begin to show us that there's this time for everything. And then we're going to see that God makes everything beautiful in its time. And, and I don't want you to get lost with this statement because some of you would take this statement, it ain't good. if it ain't good, then God ain't done. It's like, well, if, if singleness, I guess, you know, God's just going to give me a spouse. <laughs> or, or it's like, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm destined to be a millionaire by the time I'm 35. And you just start having this name it and claim it, this health, wealth, and prosperity type of theology. And I don't think, the the problem with that is I just don't think our definition of good is the same as God's definition of good. And that's really the problem at the end of the day. Amen? And so sometimes we're going to see as we unpack Ecclesiastes 3 that God's definition is different than ours. And we're going to see throughout the scriptures as we cross-reference different ones across or throughout this time we're going to see that sometimes God does allow pain and suffering to mark our life. So we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 3. If you have a Bible, you can open, up there, open it up to Ecclesiastes 3. If you don't, then I just want to share this every single week. We have a Bible for you out in the town center. You can go to the welcome desk directly after the service, and we would love to give you a physical copy of God's Word. And so we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 3, and we're going to study about a man named Solomon. History, not just the Bible, says that Solomon was actually a king. No one denies that. Every atheist who is well-studied will acknowledge that there's a very wealthy king, king named Solomon. Maybe the wealthiest to ever live, Wikipedia would say. We're learning from a man who was one of the most powerful people on the earth And in the end of his life, he's at the end of his life and he's just writing out these journal entries. He's reflecting back on this experiment that really just failed miserably, that he was trying everything underneath the sun and it left him empty. An experiment where he was trying to find meaning in life. He finds it in pleasure in the party. Like this dude would throw massive parties. Like thousands of people would come to his party. He would try to to find it in music. Like, like you think, hey, you know, Taylor Swift concert. Like Taylor Swift was playing in his backyard. Like that's the kind of person, like he owned the Billboard's top chart music. That, he, that was him. 700 wives, the scripture says, 300 concubines. A concubine is just a, a live-in girlfriend. That's the kind of man we're talking about. This guy who had power. Think president of the United States, a a man who was the wisest in his day. He had education. Think Elon Musk, Bill Gates. And he's coming up empty and he's miserable. And the craziest thing that we could do tonight is walk out those doors and repeat the experiment. And begin to look for life apart from God. That's what this means. Uh, You know, under the sun, we learned that two weeks ago when Tommy was here, that that under the sun means that we will try to find life apart from God. In the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes, he just says all is vanity apart from God. And so now we're going to be in chapter 3 and he's going to talk about life with God. So here we go. Chapter 3, verse 1. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. So a person's birthday and their funeral. A time to plant and a time to uproot. And so now not just a person but with plants, a time to plant and a time to uproot that plant. And now you're just going to hear like an array of emotions. Good and bad. Exciting, not so exciting. 
fluctuating of emotions, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build. And you're going to find yourself in the midst of these emotions. Just think, you know, think back on your life, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Anyone? A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. First point of tonight I want to make is just this, a time for everything, just like the text said. A time for everything. This is the human experience of every person that ever lives, right? Like this is what we experience under the sun, which is an appointed time for every kind of experience. Solomon is saying God has the day of our birth and the day of our death in his sovereign plan. All events happen between our birth and death. God is in control of it all. And then verse 3 through 8, he's just saying, and he's not just in control of the good times, he's in control of the bad times. Everyone will mourn and everyone will dance. Everyone will laugh and everyone will cry. And again, everyone will be born and everyone will die. He, He doesn't just avoid the highs, but he also shows you the lows. Or he doesn't just talk about the highs, he also shows you the lows of life. Like nobody gets to avoid the different array of emotions in this text. There's pain in this world. This isn't the world we had. This isn't Genesis 1 and 2 where God creates everything and he says it's good and he creates everything and he says it's good and he does this six times over the course of six days. And on the seventh day he rests and it's Adam and it's God and everything's harmonious, everything's in its perfect place, its rightful place. This is Genesis 1 and 2. This is not what we had. This is now what we have. Genesis 3, where sin entered into creation and it sent creation into chaos. And so we see some jacked up things happening in the world. All suffering is a result result of Genesis 3, 6, the fall of man. So if something's not good, you can point back to sin, Genesis 3, 6, the fall of man. And so we've inherited all of that since that moment. And so there's this gap now from Time we were born to the time we die, and it's called life, and life is hard. Like, I don't think I have to convince you of that tonight. And he's saying, hey, paradise lost, though, will be paradise regained someday. It's not the life that we will have. I've read the rest of the book. If you haven't, I encourage you to. But in the gap, there's pain. And in the middle, the gap is where we kind of come up with some really weird Views of God. You'll hear T.A. say a lot. His mentor told him, our view of God determines our response to God. And so some of us, we have the wrong response to God because of our, our view of God. Like some of us might, might, might say things like, well, if God is good, then he wouldn't blank. Or if there's a God, then I wouldn't experience, feel this. Well, you know, God wouldn't give me the desire to get married if he didn't have a spouse for me. You know, God wouldn't give me the desire to be a millionaire if he wasn't going to make me a millionaire. This, again, name it and claim it theology. God God wouldn't give me the desire for children or the desire for health if he wasn't going to provide health and and children for me. And so we just have this weird 
uh, view of who God is based on the gap, the, the suffering, the sin, the pain that we all experience. The problem with that thinking is that you can have a, a deep, deep need to get married. And then you can walk out of this place, get in your car, hit, get hit by a car, and die. And you're like, bro, that just ex- escalated quickly. But that's my point, right? It's like you, you, you could go and that could happen to you. And then everything that you thought about God is, is not true. Because that's wrong thinking. Because of suffering, the world is fractured. Jesus said it like this in John 16, He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So even in this verse, Jesus is saying, hey, you're going to have peace in me, but in the world you're going to have tribulation. So it's just this time for everything. You're going to have both peace and tribulation, peace and testing, peace and pain, peace and suffering. But, but take heart. He's overcome the world. We, we, we know the story that he wrote through the person of Jesus. We'll talk about that more as we continue to progress this evening. Jesus also said this in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, this idea that, hey, there's an adversary out there and his job is to steal, to take things from you that aren't his, kill, ultimately take you out and destroy you, to, to just annihilate you to, so that you can't experience the life that Jesus wants you to experience. So you see, life is filled with highs and lows, ups and downs, and I've learned this um, by just watching how life unfolds. Like one of the times I've learned this the most was when I watched a couple uh, get married. Like they dated and got engaged and got married and then pain settled in. And this couple happened to be, or happens to be my brother-in-law and sister-in-law. You see, I coached in my previous life. You're like, you were a coach? Yeah, I was a coach. I coached at James Madison University, coached baseball and coached a young man named Alex Foltz. And then I was dating a, a girl you saw her up on the screen a minute ago, Kathy. And uh, I was like, you know, like, you got a sister. Uh, let me play matchmaker. You know what I'm saying? I, I've been known to set some people up in my day. And so uh, your boy introduced Alex to Jenny. And uh, they started dating. And it was beautiful. Like, it was awesome. It was, you know, the sparks were flying and, um, man, they were progressing. And he was playing minor league baseball at the time. She was living in New Orleans as a pediatric nurse. And, you know, they were doing their thing long distance. And then he's like, it's time for me to put a ring on it. I'm like, all right, let's, let's go, bro. And so he puts a ring on it. And they get married. And it's amazing, the highs of life. And then all of a sudden, in a matter of two years, a little over two years, they get some of the most devastating news that a person could ever have. And I thought to myself, man, what would it be like if I just called her this morning? You know, the problem with that is she lives in a remote place in West Virginia. She's a turkey farmer. Well, she ain't. Her husband is. And uh, I was like, I think, I think we could put you on a plane and get you down here. And so she's here. 
And I want her to give you part of her journey as she's experienced the highs and the lows of what Solomon is talking about in Ecclesiastes 3. Would you welcome to the stage Jenny Foltz? <laughs> Love you, girl. Love you. Do your thing. Goodness. It's humbling to be here tonight. I never would have imagined myself up here in front of y'all. I've watched remotely online on a farm in West Virginia. I've taken some of the classes and courses, and so Watermark has been a big gift for me. Um, and so to, ha to be here tonight is um, all God, and I'm hoping to bring my fish and loaves, and he multiplies it for his glory. Um, and I'm going to read. I'm not going to be near as animated as Josiah. I'm going to be right here in my box. So here we go. <laughs> all right. We all have a story to tell. As a follower of Jesus and an adopted child of God, the neatest thing about all of our stories is they are connected through him. Tonight, I am humbled to share a part of my story the Lord has faithfully walked me and my husband through. A time in my life where God met me right where I was in my pain. How he pursued my heart and how he changed the meaning of what I thought a good life meant. At the time, Alex and I had been married a little over two and a half years and we lived on the family farm. This big city girl, big city like he said, New Orleans, Dallas, Fort Worth, turned farmer's wife. Had just had her 30th birthday and I was enjoying a nice career as a pediatric nurse. We were expecting our first child and planning to announce it to our family soon. Everything was going smoothly, life was good, until one day it wasn't. Cancer. At eight weeks pregnant, I was diagnosed with stage three advanced cancer. Shocked and disbelief quickly took hold. What was happening? How was this possible? Surely this was a bad dream I would wake up from at any moment. To give myself the best chance of survival, we were advised to have an abortion and start treatment right away. At that moment, my definition of a fun, adventurous, and good life was falling apart right before my eyes. This was the start of a jolt in life I didn't know I needed. A splash of ice cold water to a fate that was lukewarm and stagnant at best. Alex and I wanted to give our baby a chance to live, even if that posed a greater uh, risk to my health. In faith, we pursued a customized treatment plan. The doctors would perform major abdominal surgery to remove the tumor and they would place an ileostomy bag at nine weeks pregnant. It's okay if you don't know what that is. <laughs> we had some really hard days full of fear that were almost crippling. The what ifs and the unknowns were all I could think of at times. Moments when Alex had to peel me out from under the covers and moments I felt like I would physically be sick from the fear. And do you know what God was teaching me, showing me and asking me? Little, by mo little moment by moment, I was confronted with the questions. Do you really believe what you say about me? Do you remember or even know who I am? Will you trust me? Perhaps I thought I was immune to what Jesus said in John 16:33, as Josiah mentioned earlier, when he said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I will overcome the world. Well, I was definitely surprised and shocked to say the least by the trouble that had come my way. I knew God was making a mistake, just kidding, I know God doesn't make mistakes. This wasn't exactly the suffering I was wanting or expecting or had in mind for the plan of my life. And God, in his kindness, got right down to my level and sat with me in my fears, doubts, questions, and patiently started to show me who he really was, who he is, 
And once the fog cleared, I ultimately wanted to be a part of his glory being revealed. I was learning and still am learning what it means to lose oneself for Christ is actually gain. And to be refined by fire is painful. Killing your flesh isn't pretty, but I was starting to want more of him and less of me. He was slowly but surely making his scripture come alive in my heart. And when the fear would start to overcome me, and trust me, I have many stories of the battles against fear. He would remind me with his scripture, like this one from Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen and I will help you. I will hold, uphold you with my righteous right hand. I remember when I was getting my hour-long MRI, how scared I was. And during that hour, I felt the Holy Spirit whisper in Jenny language, I've got you. You are okay. But what I learned and what I want you to understand this evening is that he wasn't telling me everything was going to be easy. He wasn't telling me that I didn't have cancer. He wasn't telling me everything was going to be fine in my shallow earthly standards. He was saying, trust me, Jenny. Trust me no matter what. Whether you die of cancer in six months or live to a ripe old age of 100, you can trust me. God was slowly redefining what it meant to have a good life. He was transforming my heart and teaching me to stand on his promises, like in Isaiah 43, where he says, I will be with you no matter what. I love you. You are precious to me. Trust me. And you can trust him too with whatever you are going through. The week spent in the hospital after surgery was a hard one. A week filled with many moments of pain, weight loss, nausea, vomiting, NG tubes, but also with flowers, cards, texts, and phone calls. I could name countless ways God uses people to encourage us when we needed it most. Another sweet gift was the ability to see our baby every single day through ultrasound due to the high-risk surgery. We were able to see little nubs grow into arms and legs right before our eyes. Having something to celebrate during the trial was such a gift from God. During those 14 months, mom was up helping take care of me and, the, and the, uh, me and Alex, and there were a couple things she said that really stuck with me. Uh, anytime she would see fear start to take over, she would stop, look at me, and say, Jenny, what are you afraid of? Tell me. And I would respond with, well, what if I die and I can't be here with Alex or to raise our baby? And she would look at me and kindly, gracefully say, okay, well, what if you do? Is there anything you can really do about that? And do you trust God with Alex and your child if that's the plan he has for you? What am I supposed to say to that, Mom? <laughs> but I knew she was right. Um, and I didn't really like it, honestly. And God knows that. He knows our hearts. I don't think he asked us to like it. He just asked us to continue to walk and trust. Over time, if we let him, our hearts will change from resistance to gratitude. But there's something about naming your fear and praying over it. It doesn't change your circumstance, but it does change your perspective. And like I read recently, instead of telling your God how big your problem is, start telling your problem how big your God is. It helps, it really does. Another mom moment, we were all driving in the car together. We were having a bad day. I don't remember who said it, but one of us said, I wish everything would just go back to normal. And my sweet mom again said, but do you really? Do you really want everything to go back to the way it was before? If you don't change, then what's the point? This would all be a waste if you don't let God use this. How will you live differently after this? 
It was hard to hear, but she was right again. God is really good at turning your ashes into something beautiful if you let him. After recovering from surgery, my second trimester consisted of three months of IV chemo. And on February 5th, 2018, the miracle we had all been praying for happened. We delivered a healthy baby boy named Alex Carter Fultz. Carter is now five and a half years old. And don't worry, he's still very much a wild and crazy five-year-old who thinks his way is always best. But we love our little wild and crazy boy to pieces. And I wish I could tell you that after he was born that I was cancer-free. When Carter was two months old, my doctor called with the results from a recent scan. I still had cancer in an area that would be hard to remove. I would need another surgery, more chemo, and radiation. I don't have time to tell you about all these struggles during this phase, but I will tell you about one. As I'm in my hospital room, the doctors come in ecstatic about the results of the surgery. The surgery was successful, um, but the upcoming treatments of radiation Radiation and the surgery would likely take away the ability for Alex and I to have more children. I cannot tell you the heart pain I felt in this moment. The torn emotions between the, the lymph nodes successfully being removed and the loss of a dream all in one package. I remember the surgeon looking at me like it was yesterday and saying, I know how badly you want more children and I'm so very sorry. You have fought so hard for Carter, and today we had the privilege to fight hard for you. This was and still is a really hard part of our journey. I remember praying, Lord, please, not this, not this. And again, he spoke to me and said, Jenny, do you trust me? Psalm 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I learned that verse is not saying, seek me and I will give you all that you desire, but instead seek me and I will be all that you desire. I needed to want him more than I wanted the healing. I needed to love him and desire him more than my want and desire for more children. Now, I also don't have time to tell you about the radiation experience either, but I will tell you it was tough. The weight loss, the burns, the daily IV fluids, more nausea and vomiting, a teething baby, all the possible lifelong side effects, and I could go on and on. It was physically, mentally, and emotionally hard, and yet another opportunity to trust the Lord. On August 16th, 2018, we had our first clear scans. On August 22nd, 2018, my port was removed. In September 28th, 2018, I would have my third surgery to reverse the ileostomy bag. All praise, glory, and thanks be to Jesus. I am so very grateful for the healing and for our son, Carter. Those are gifts, but they aren't the prize. Jesus is the prize. Janet Erickson Stewart said, joy is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of God. My definition of what a good life meant would forever be changed. The good in life is not earthly, but heavenly, and I cannot wait to see Jesus in all of his glory. No more tears, no more suffering, no more death. I thought I knew that, but with help, the help of the Holy Spirit, he's helping me learn to live it. As I tell my story, I know full well that healing on this earth is not always a part of everyone's story. I had um, several friends diagnosed alongside of me that went to be with Jesus, who had young children and husbands as well. I can never even come close to trying to explain the why behind the suffering we see in this world, but I can tell you all about the one, Jesus, who walked with me and my husband through it 
and he is walking with you as well. I have a theme verse, 2 Corinthians 4, 16, 18. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Because of what God walked me through and how he comforts me, I hope to also be a comfort to others during their time of need. I'll end with a quote from Elizabeth Elliot. The deepest things that I have learned in my own life have come from the deepest suffering. And out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things that I know about God. Because suffering, if we let God work, is never for nothing. God hasn't wasted my suffering and he won't waste your suffering when you choose to trust him. He's not done writing my story and he's not done writing your story. You can trust him as well. Praise God. Uh, you might have heard me say as she walked up here, I just said, hey, you do your thing. And what it just means, hey, you just make God famous in the midst of your pain. You just make much of him. And as you continue to live with the scars and you live with the story that God has given you and that he's continuing to write for you. And, and that's what pain is for. Or that's one of the reasons what pain is for is that it grows dependence on God. It refines you in a way where all the things that Solomon tried to pursue in the first two chapters are vanity apart from God. That's what pain does is it humanizes you and it shows you that there's something beyond the clouds, like the world. It's something beyond just what we live and breathe and, and do day in and day out. There's a God who came ultimately for suffering, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 9, Solomon goes on to say, what do workers gain for their toil, or what does workers gain from their toil, better yet said? What do they profit, or what do they show from all their work, is what he's saying. He's saying that no matter how good you are at work, you will die and you'll lose everything. Tommy said it like this two weeks ago. He just says, that's why you never see a, a hearse pulling a U-Haul because all of that's going to be gone. You, you can't take it with you. It goes on and says in verse 10, I have seen the burden. Another translation says, I've seen the task. I've seen the burden of the task God has laid on the human race. This burden or this task is talking about how life is hard. Here in this chapter, like I said earlier, he's writing to the believer. He's writing to the, the, the person who has their eyes open to God. And, and he's saying these things from a place of, hey, their, their eyes have been open to the truth. And so what do you do when life is filled with question marks, when you sometimes look at the Bible and it's just filled with explanation, exclamation points? Like, what do you do when that happens? Like, like what do you do when you find your faith that's in a crisis? Like, why does the Bible and, and God allow suffering and pain if he's good? The routine checkup that ends up stage three cancer at 30 or the person that got on the road and got hit by another 
car and their life is taken or the four-year-old who drowned in the pool to death. Like, what do you do with those things? That's why, you know, if you ever lead someone to Christ, you don't just say, hey, come to Christ and he'll make everything better. That, that's, that's not accurate. When we read verses like John 16, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart of overcome the world. There's a promise attached to that. And so what's our solution? Is it deism? There's a God, but he's just absent. He's kind of on furlough. He's on a break. He's, he's not really present in people's lives. Is it dualism? Like, you know, Satan and, and God, they're, they're going back and forth. And sometimes God wins and sometimes Satan wins. And there's this tennis match and they're just kind of going back and forth. Satan and God are vying for the throne. Oh, no. God uses Satan and evil to accomplish his purposes in this world. And that Satan and evil, it's not like Satan and God are here. No, it's God and Satan is below him. And Satan has to um, consult with God and everything that he does. Have you ever read the book of Job? Like you should read that at some point. Job, he lost his possessions, his children, and his health. That's a book in the Bible. Do we understand all things? No, we don't understand all things. But we have to believe that God is in control of all things. Like if I were to go home tonight and I find out that my house was burned down and my wife is dead and my three kids are dead, don't just tell me accidents happen. That's not going to be enough. Like, I got to know that God is in control. If I, you know, go to the doctor and he gives me the results and I have two weeks to live. Like, it's not going to be enough for, for, for you to say God's not God. I have to know that God is in control and he's made a way for life after death. If I don't believe that, then I run to the bottle to cope. I run to a drug. I run to an illegitimate relationship. I run to the party. I run to the things that are going to numb me. Like it's not going to be helpful. Accidents happen? That's not helpful. God's in control. Even if we can't explain everything. Because he's made a way for you and I to be reconciled with him. How many of you in the last five years, if you're honest, you've experienced pain that you can't really make sense of. Just a show of hands, how many of you? In the last five years, wow. Like, just hold them up, a little higher. Do, do you see this? All right, you can put them down. Like, like do, you, do you see the, the hands are in the air? Like, how do we make sense in the midst of pain? James 1 says this half-brother of Jesus, I think he's got some pretty good advice. Verse 2, he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind. I love it when it says when, not if, right? That's important. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. God wants to get you and I to a place where he is the end goal. Nothing else. Like when I was at 30 wondering, like, God, do you have someone for me? He's like, wait, wait, am I enough, Josiah? If I don't, if I don't have, if I don't have a spouse for you, am I enough? 
And I remember just laying in bed at night, just, I mean, I'm, I'm not ashamed. I mean, the scripture says, time for everything. I was crying. I mean, I was trying to, I was a youth pastor trying to follow Jesus. And just like, did you forget about me, God? I mean, it, he's trying to get us to a point where he's the end. Because if he's not at the end, then when you do get married, you're going to make that spouse your savior. And spouses make miserable saviors. That's a whole other message. Let me get back to the text. <laughs> Sorry to you, man. I, I can just go on a rant, but I'll, I'll get back. I'll get back. What about the story of Joseph? Like, you know, the story of Joseph, like thrown into a pit, sold into slavery by his own brothers. And, and then he gets caught up in this sex scandal. Yeah, that's in our Bible. He gets caught up in a sex scandal, accused wrongly. And gets thrown in prison. But then slowly but surely he begins to rebuild trust and become second in command. And this is what he says in verse 20 of Genesis 50. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Crazy, man. I think Jenny could say that tonight. What, what you know, the cancer looks like evil. Man, God meant it for good. We can see that. She can't answer every question of why things happen, but slowly but surely God's starting to make sense of it. And she's, she's being used by God to share her story. This is why Solomon says in verse 11, getting back to the text in Ecclesiastes 3, he just says, he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time, which is point number two, and I'm going to move fast. He makes everything beautiful in its time. And this is where I get the truth. If it ain't good, God ain't done. Or if something's not good in your life, then God isn't done. It's a verse. We have a verse. It's Romans 8, 28. That God causes all things to work together for the good. This is what it says in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things, that, just circle that, all, good and bad, things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I wish I could unpack that more. I don't have time. But you should highlight that and you should go back and study that. Solomon continues in the second half of verse 11. He just says this. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Like we have a longing to see how God sees, yet we can't make sense of it. So it, sometimes it leads to frustration and disappointments. And, and we have to sometimes just live in that and it builds trust. It allows that faith muscle to get stronger and stronger and stronger. And God begins to reveal how he wants you to use that pain, that suffering, like he has in Jenny's life. We have this eternal void, uh, verse 11 says, this, that nothing under the sun can fill it. Like you can leave here and you can go fill it with your hypoallergenic labradoodle or your Maltese, but it's not going to fill it, right? Like you can, you, can, you can run to, you know, your job and you can try to climb the ladder of corporate success and get that, that corner office and that raise and make six figures or be a millionaire by the time you're 30 or 35, but it ain't going to fill it. You, you can stuff the, the Tesla in there. You can stuff the house within that certain zip code. You can stuff that Instagram reel, reel that you made over the 4th of July that you got people getting likes on and all of your influence and it's not going to fill it. Like that's what Solomon is getting at in verse 11. 
Like he's on this trajectory where he's tried everything and all it's doing is leaving him more and more thirsty. It, it, it's kind of like salt water. Do you know anything about salt water? Like, like salt water, like if you're stranded at the sea and you get thirsty and you begin to drink salt water, like it's, it's not going to go well for you because the point of salt water is that the more you drink, the more thirsty you're going to become. And the world, you're traveling through life and the world is offering you salt water. And the more you drink it, the more thirsty you are going to become. Like so many of us, we come into this place thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be satisfied if I just get that. You, you fill in the blank. And Solomon is saying that, that you're just drinking salt water. That nothing in this world will satisfy your thirst, but only leave you more and more thirsty. He said eternity in every human heart. I'll close with this. Um, what else? What, another thing that helps me deal with suffering in this life, the pain. I, I don't even have time to go into it, but whether it's a phone call that I got when I was um, in my 20s from uh, a good friend of mine that we roomed together with. He, this guy was my roommate, and he was calling about our roommate, and uh, he was calling to tell me that he got... Um, that his plane went down. He had a tragic plane accident and our roommate died. I, I don't know what your suffering is. I don't know what your tragedy is. I don't know what that thing is. I don't know what you've walked through in life, but the gospel that helps me deal with the evil that's in this world, the suffering, the pain that we go through, like the greatest act of injustice, think about it, that has ever took place happened 2,000 years ago. The only perfect person to ever live, a divine man, was rejected, betrayed, denied, tortured, put on a cross. He and all the people surrounded him. He didn't do anything to deserve that. And he died for your sin and my sin. Jesus, the, the one person who was perfectly righteous, he was, he was without sin, was nailed to a tree. For every injustice in this world, for every sin in this world, for every wrong under the sun, he got tortured, nailed to the cross, suffocated to death. And what good could possibly come out of that? Yet God, he turned the most evil thing that ever happened under the sun into good because three days later, the scripture says in history records that he rose again from the dead to defeat that sin and that suffering that you and I go through. And he hasn't eradicated it completely. There's purpose in the pain. He never wastes any of it. But there's coming a day when he's going to make every wrong right. No injustice will go without pay. You can either have that being paid for by him or it would be paid for in hell, the scripture says. And, and I look at everything that God's done, how he's reconciled us to him as our creator. And now if God can do that, can he not take your situations and turn them for good? And he's coming back. Revelation 21, I'll end with this. I, I, I read this earlier today and I couldn't stop but just marinate on it and sit on it and just soak this up. This is what it says. I, 
Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth. This is John getting a a glimpse of what's to come. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. You know that? Coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And don't miss this. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither, there shall, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne. Look at what he says. Behold, I am making all things new. Where's your hope tonight? In the midst of pain in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of highs of life. Go back and read the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes. Have you come into this place and you haven't gotten to that place of all is vanity? Maybe you're just like, oh, I'm just gonna try the experiment out like Solomon did. And I'm telling you, you won't be exempt. The worst thing you can do is leave this place and repeat the experiment. Some of us are here and like, you get it, man. You're like, yeah, my only hope is built on Christ. And when the pains of life come, I might not be able to articulate the why clearly, but I don't live as if all life is an accident. No, I I live that there's a God and he's in control and he's made a way for every wrong to be made right. And he's gonna wipe away every tear from our eye and death will be no more and pain will be no more. Let me pray that you live with that hope tonight. Father God, we come before you and we ask that you would move in power and in might. That although my words may fail me, you never do. And I pray God that your word would be maximized in this place and my words would be minimized that if anyone leaves this place and remembers anything, they would remember you and what your word says. God, would you give us the hope that this world cannot give us? And if someone's here tonight, God, and they don't have a relationship with you, they've never bended the knee in humility before you, recognize that they're a sinner separated from a holy, perfect God, but you came and you were the bridge by dying on the cross for our sins so that we may be made right with you. And three days later, you rose again from the dead. If they had never truly placed their faith and trust in what you've done and they're placing their faith and trust in them, God, would they break tonight? And would they, for the first time, follow you? And then for my believing friends that they wouldn't grow weary in well-doing for in due season, you tell us we'll reap if we faint not, that we'll continue to trust you no matter the circumstances of life. And you would give us more of you and that would be enough. We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name, amen.